Okay, if you have your Bibles, um, open it to 1 John, which is at the very end of the Bible. So if you go to the very end, you'll find Revelation, and it's right before Revelation in 1 John at the end. So 1 John 5, starting in verse 16. First John 5:16 If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death There is sin that leads to death I do not say that one should pray for that All wrongdoing is sin but there is sin that does not lead to death We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Thanks, Hannah. Good morning, church. So we are concluding our series on 1 John this morning. And it's been a really, really good series for us. Next week, Pastor Ross will be preaching 2 John. And then the following week after that, he's going to be preaching 3 John. They're very short, so he's going to be able to do them in one shot. But let me remind you where we've been going in 1 John. The staff came together, as we always do, to prepare our next sermon series. And we kind of thought about how could we sum up the very essence and the heart of 1 John. And this is what we came up with on the screen eventually. There. We know that we are God's children when we believe in Jesus love his family, and overcome the world and evil one. So if you want to synthesize like the heart of 1 John, the themes he repeatedly goes back and forth to, these things are there. Now John is a little difficult to preach because he's repetitive. He kind of talks about something and then talks about other things and goes back to that thing again but with a different angle. And I think one of the challenges for us in the Western kind of culture is that we feel like we've accomplished something because we've heard something. You know what I'm saying? That when we are familiar with something, that we've accomplished something. That's why documentaries can be so dangerous, because just because you know something's there doesn't mean you've done anything at that point. And with First John or anything in the Word, you can feel that tension where, oh, I've heard that. You're, you're literally saying the same thing, John, that you just said, and yet what we want to do at All People's Church is not just be familiar with truths, but be shaped by these truths, steep in these truths, live these truths, love these truths. Understand them to the very core of our being to where it becomes part of our very culture. And so John keeps going back to these themes over and over again. And so what we're doing this morning is we're actually preaching half of a passage from the previous section from Pastor Dale's sermon. And if you missed it, it's not recorded. And it was so good, wasn't it? For those who were at family camp, it was so good. So grab someone who's saying yes and say, hey, teach it to me because they're supposed to teach it to you. And then we're going to conclude with John's three final words to the church that of what we know and one final warning. So this sermon may feel a little disjointed because we're kind of combining 
a few different sections, and I'm trying to bring it to, together. So if it feels that way, that's what John's doing, and I have to do my best with it. This week, it's been a tremendous labor for this passage, not only because I have uh, post-family camp uh, recovery, as many of you guys have. It was great. So family camp was fantastic. All the teachings on the household are on the, uh, on the website now. So if you missed it, please listen to those. They were fantastic and good. And even more, as we've got a number of survey responses, the number one thing people kept saying over and over again about family camp was how good it was to be with each other. So I love that increasingly our church is a family because of Jesus, but increasingly living out that reality more and more. Now, I've been very tired this week, and this sermon is very difficult for me to prep because this passage is argued by many scholars the most hard-to-interpret passage in 1 John. So we end our series on 1 John with the hardest passage in 1 John. So goody me. So I did my best, but despite how hard it was, this passage was so good for me. I need this passage, and you need this passage. Because right now, in light of how good things are going on in our church, and next week we're celebrating five years of God's grace upon our church, being a church of five years old, there are a number of challenges in our church. There are beloved people in our church who are in the throes and war of sin, and they're losing right now. And it's breaking our hearts. The pastoral staff is weary. We've been getting long nights and really difficult conversations, and we feel beat up. And the beauty of this passage is it helps us zoom out because you can get so caught up in, I dare say, sometimes enmeshed into situations where you you can't see straight of what is reality. And what John is doing throughout 1 John is giving us a picture of what is authentic Christianity. He simplifies things. And yes, there's complex, complexities in all of our lives. Yes, we're all a, a mixture of a complicated soup of contradictions. And there's so much context of why we do what we do and why we are. But John helps us zoom out and say, okay, what is reality? Helps us zoom out of the trees and see the full forest. And so that's where John is going to take us today and where hopefully I'll faithfully take you as well. So I need this passage. And let me remind you, in the previous section... Pastor Dale preach verses 14 and 15. If you have your Bible, please look at that just briefly. John is teaching us on these sweet promises of prayer. And he gives this incredible promise that we can pray and God will hear us and answer us provided we're praying according to his will. Now John is going to give us another promise we can bank on. A very specific situation we can bank on and pray and God will be favorable and answer it. And then he's going to mention in a confusing way, three times, a different situation that we can't be so confident in. So let's look at our passage this morning again. 1 John 5, I'm going through the ESV. If you do not have a Bible, that's okay. We have these pew Bibles in your, uh, these are called pews, if you don't know what they are. I I didn't know what that was until I was older. So pews, and there's ESV Bibles there if you want to grab, if you don't have one. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 through 17. Would you read this out loud for me, with me? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What? John is so simple and yet so deeply confusing. 
Most Christians who thoughtfully read this passage and say, what does it mean, are usually going to immediately ask a few questions. One, what is the sin that leads to death? And what follows is, have I committed it? Or can I commit it? And what is the sin that does not lead to death? Because if I had to choose one between a sin that leads to death and one that doesn't lead to death, I want the one that doesn't lead to death. So let me commit that one. What is that? The challenging thing, there are five popular interpretations of what the sin that does not lead to death is. And I'm not going to go through all of them. Some of them are very easy to immediately discount, while others are difficult. You know, for example, some people think this sin that leads to death is talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is a true thing in Mark chapter 3 and in other Gospels. But what I can say pretty confidently is that sometimes interpreters will get the right doctrine, but from the wrong address. So I don't think if you look at this context, John has in mind the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but that is still a true doctrine in other parts of scripture. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, if that's not what he's talking about, what is he talking about here? See, this is a difficult passage that I keep saying, and whenever you have a passage that has so much debate, and if you were to study all the literature on this, you'll see how difficult it is, and you'll read one position, and you're like, this is it, no one else is right, and then you read another position, you're like, oh, actually, this is it, no one else is right. You go back and forth, you're going to feel some struggle. And I hopefully did that struggle, a lot of it, for you this week. But it's a great important principle for us to pause and talk about for a second. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but I think it's important for us as a church. And that is this. We must be humble and charitable about our interpretations of scriptures that are not abundantly clear. Did you guys hear that? We need to be charitable and humble about interpretations on scripture that are not clear. And so may we be a church that is always bold and clear and unapologetic and unashamed about things that are clear though and humble and gracious about things that are not. That's very important as we continue to grow as a church culture is that we hold things open-handed only the things that the scripture holds open-handed. And that we are bold and convictional about the things that are clear. Our culture has them backwards where everything is an open conversation. Everything must be graciously, openly held. And that is not what scripture teaches. And so I'm going to tell you my best interpretation of this passage. And you can check my work and you ought to check my work to see it's actually coming from the word. Not just because I say it. So we need humility here. So let me tell you the answer. Just kidding. You didn't catch that. What is the sin that leads to death? Let's make some basic points that we can get, and then we'll go to the context. First, John says, anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death. That word see is important because we can conclude that what John has to have in mind is sin that is observable. Not something that he's discerning prophetically into their heart, but a, a sin that is observable that they can be doing or, or not doing. We can also clearly say, if you've read throughout 1 John with us, is that this death he's speaking about is spiritual. He has in mind eternal life, and he says it over and over again throughout this letter and in this context. So he's not talking about physical death, though physical death would be included ultimately in spiritual death. So now let's look at the context, which is the key to understanding this passage. Because if you read this passage 
by itself, you'll be utterly confused. So you have to zoom out to see what else John has been saying. Remember, we've said this before, never read a verse. If you want to understand the Bible, you have to read verses, not a verse. And you get in trouble when you just zoom in one and miss the context. So this is going to be confusing as I walk you through, but then it will come together, hopefully, with a lot of clarity at the end. So what is the passage, the context before our passage this morning, verse 16 and 17? Um, before 16 and 17. If you look at your Bibles right now, 11 through 15 is the previous context. And if you glimpse quickly, you can see a couple of plain points. Number one, God is the one who gives eternal life. And God speaks about, uh, John speaks about eternal life and having Jesus as one and the same. So if you say you have eternal life, you're saying that you have Jesus. So logically, the opposite would be true. If you do not have Jesus, you do not have eternal life. And what's the opposite of eternal life? Starts with a D. Death. So if you don't have Jesus, you have death. That, that's the context that we're getting into right before our passage. Now let's look at the verse right after, because sometimes in context you don't just look at what's before, but you look at what's after. Look at verse 18 with me. If you have your Bible, please read this out loud. We know that everyone who has been born of God So those who have been born of God, the Greek here literally says fathered by God, begotten by God, will not keep sinning. We see this over and over in 1 John. We've preached on this multiple sermons. And John does not mean perfection. Remember? That's why John gives us provisions like John chapter 1. If you sin, you can confess it, and he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. And then chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So John fully knows that Christians are going to struggle with sin. But what he has in mind is a perpetual giving over to sin. Not fighting. Constantly in a state of, of sinning and being trapped in it. And yet, the reality that we see throughout 1 John and in this passage is that true children of God now have the Spirit of God abiding in them. And you can only so long continue in sin and feel the grieving of the Holy Spirit and not just give in. True children of God are too uncomfortable with their sin over time. Yes, we all can fall into seasons of sin and doubt and struggle, but eventually you just cannot handle it very long because the Spirit of God goes to work. And true Christians cannot resist it over time. That much is so clear throughout 1 John. So now, keeping the previous context and the following context, let's put it together with what happens in John chapter 2. Do you guys remember that part of the context of John writing this letter is that there has been a schism in the church? There is a group of so-called Christians who were part of the community who left because they were denying that Jesus came in the flesh, and they did deny that Jesus was the only atoning sacrifice for our sins and the one we need that Jesus needed to die on the cross look at first John chapter 2 you get a little clue of what's going on first John chapter 2 verse 19 maybe on the screen probably on the screen yes on the screen they went out from us but they were not of us so he's talking about a specific group of people so you have to do some mirror reading trying to understand what's going on here from these verses for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out 
that it might be complained that they all are not of us. And if you look at other passages throughout 1 John, you get clues of what John is combating, of what they believed. Like I said, they rejected Jesus, came in the flesh, and they also rejected that there needed to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, a propitiation for our sins, as we've taught about. Now, why is that important for us? Because maybe you're not saying that. The challenge with these people who left is that they probably still claim to be Christians. They weren't saying they're atheists. What they simply did is remade Jesus in their own image and called themselves still Christians. And that is a danger for us today. Let me make a quick aside, if, if you let me. How do we remake Jesus today? We still see this all the time. And what we see, and we've seen this in our circles in the last few years, is that people have exposure to the living, true, biblical Jesus. And somewhere along the line, either their study of scripture, but usually a tragedy or something in life causes them to, to reject certain parts of who Jesus is. Start to reject his character or what he says. And, and instead of rejecting Jesus wholeheartedly, they, they couldn't do that, they start to remake him. They start to pick this and this, and they like this, but let's ignore those things. They excuse those away, they, they interpret them away, and they hold on to some form of Jesus, and so they still claim that they still love him. However, at what point do you so heavily pick and choose Jesus' words and alter his very character that you are, in fact, rejecting Jesus? So imagine a very crude example of a man who declares his love for a woman, and they're going to get married. But he says, before we get married, let's have plastic surgery on every part of your body, and let me fix your personality, and then you can be my wife. See, that's a crude example, but hopefully you can track with me where I'm going. At what point can you so heavily alter the very character and words of Jesus to where you no longer have Jesus? And so just because people in our culture or in the world are claiming Jesus, you have to check, are they actually holding to the real Jesus? Some of their Jesus are so unrecognizable. I'm really helped by Tim Keller, who, as many of you know, recently passed away. I wept like a baby when he died. I, I so want to be faithful to the end of my life like him. He has this quote that I just have been found, I found so helpful over the years. It's going to be on the screen. So, so helpful as we think through remaking Jesus or not. Tim Keller says this, Only if your God can outrage and challenge you will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Whew. Church, may we always receive the biblical Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his simplicity, and in all of his complexities. No matter what our sensibilities feel or our shifting cultural tides will try to sway us to, we always hold on to Jesus, simply Jesus, what he says about him. Now let's get back to the question at hand. That was another aside. Let's answer this question. What is the sin that leads to death? Well, let me walk through kind of some of the logic of what we've been talking about. If you don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, then you do not have the real biblical Christ. Following me? If you do not have the Son, Christ, you do not have eternal life. And if you do not have the Son, 
you will continue in your sins habitually because you don't have his seed abiding in you, transforming you and convicting you. And so therefore you won't live like him and love like him. And if you don't have the biblical Christ, you won't obey his words and ways because you don't have his words and ways anymore. Remember, what the Bible does always, over and over again, is it marries true teaching, true living, and true loving together. They are not divorced. There is no such thing as knowing the right thing and not living the right way. They're married together. They're inseparable. So let me bring all this together. I know that was a confusing mess. Hopefully you've been tracking along with me, God's grace. What is this sin that leads to death? I don't think it means any unbeliever. I think John has very specifically in mind people who were part of a church community or experienced the real biblical Jesus. So keep praying for your family. Keep praying for your unbelieving friends and coworkers and neighbors. So this is what I believe it, he's actually referring to. On the screen, if you're a note taker, if this helps you. <clears throat> the sin that leads to death is committed by someone who is rejecting the biblical Christ despite being exposed to the truth which will result in unrepented sin. Okay, I know that's, that's wordy, but I'm trying to be specific and honor what John is referring to, I think, according to the context. Sin that leads to death is committed by someone who is rejecting the biblical Christ despite being exposed to the truth, which will result in unrepented sin. That doesn't mean this is the only sin that can lead to death, but this is the sin that leads to death that I think he has in mind in light of the context. Thus, this sin if that is happening in our church, will be observable from the community because this person, these people or person will be leaving the community or they're trying to divide the community with this false Jesus. And they will likely be continuing in unrepentant sin because they don't have the seed of God abiding them, transforming them, convicting them, helping them, and they don't have the real biblical Jesus anymore. If you have questions about my interpretation, Please feel free to pull me aside. I'd love to talk over it. Again, this is my best job, best shot. Other godly scholars would disagree with me. But I think if they were to understand me, I think they would agree with me. <laughs> but I could be wrong. Now, what do we do about those committing the sin that leads to death? Should we pray for them? Because if you read this passage quickly, you could come to the wrong, hear me, wrong conclusion that we do not pray for these people. But look at the passage again. What does it actually say? It says, I am not saying that you should pray about that. Do you hear that? John is not forbidding prayer. His main focus is about praying for brothers and sisters, not those who left, but those who are still among the church. In another context, in another time, it may be legitimate to pray for those people and ask God to give them life. You see what I'm saying? This is not a for forbidding or saying that it's impossible for those people to be restored. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that, right? Oh God, if I were to ever be that person, praise the Lord that this isn't saying those people can never come back. That God could have mercy on me. So now, after all that work, 22 minutes into the sermon, what is John's real main point? <laughs> because we could get so caught up on trying to interpret what he's not saying or what he's he saying over here that we miss actually what is he calling us to do as a church god will give us life that's his main point so look look at this what is the sin that does not lead to death what is the sin that does not lead to death i know this is confusing because i'm going back and forth any sin 
continually committed by a true child of God, but is hated and fought against, and what we'll see, eventually turned against. Okay? So that is, in my idea, understanding the sin that does not lead to death. All of us can commit that as Christians. But by God's grace, he can help us change. And what we see here is that God uses our prayers to give life and help us have victory when we're caught in that kind of sin. Remember Dale's sermon last week, Pastor Dale's sermon? He made this powerful point that God's sovereignty is not a deterrent of prayer, but fuel for prayer. Because why would you ask God of something that he could not do? And God doesn't just ordain ends like someone is restored and given life. He ordains means or instruments. So if he want, if you and I are caught in a cycle of sin, the way he ensures that we can have freedom and have life is not to just be, be like, whoa, sovereignty, is that he works and ordains in his people to pray for you or me, and then in doing that prayer and in praying in concert with his will, he will bring us life. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are always married together in the Bible. And many men and women of God throughout the years have tried to divide them because it's too complicated to bring them together. And so, what is the means so that you and I can have life when we are caught up in sin? Each other. We are. If I want freedom, I need you. If you want freedom, you need me. That's the main, main call in this passage. Your prayers matter. And as many of you members know, that there are some precious beloved members who are falling and struggling right now. So we must pray. We must pray and bank that this is a promise that God will do. God will give them life. Don't just sit back and say, well, God will do what he do. He's sovereign. That's fatalism and rejected over and over in the Bible. God uses you to bring about his will. Now, this passage is a promise but requires two parties, both of us, us and God. But this promise, notice, doesn't promise timing. Do you hear me? This doesn't promise timing. And we are far too impatient sometimes with our prayers with God. God does not work on our timetable. He has greater plans, and sometimes it's slower than we would like, but perfect in his ways. So what does this mean? That because they are brothers and sisters, it means they're born again, and God's seed abides in them. God will protect them and keep them, and he uses your prayers to do so. If we prayed for them to be for, for them to turn and to have life, and they eventually shipwreck their faith in their life, and they die, then what does that prove? That they were not truly of us. So, this means that 10 out of 10 times, when you pray for someone who is in sin, and they're actually a brother and sister, they will eventually turn and have life. That is a guarantee. You can take this to the bank. 100% of the time. can think about the Apostle Peter. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, Jesus talks to Peter and he says, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed. I prayed for you. Jesus prays for Peter. And although Peter makes one of the greatest blunders, most wicked acts of all history, betraying Jesus, his best friend, his Lord, Jesus restores him. And in time, he restores and strengthens and feeds 
the brothers and sisters. In similar matter, if you think about 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, what do we have before the Father, with the Father? An advocate. And what is that advocate doing for you and, uh, and me nonstop? What is he doing? He's praying. Amen. He's praying for you and me. So Jesus is actually calling us to join him in the very work that he's doing night and day for you. We are partnering with his heart so that we can make it safely home. So let's make this very practical And how do we obey this word? Number one, pray for yourself. Pray for your own heart. Let us not be a church that is so concerned with other sins that we are blind to our own. Let us first be deeply concerned with our own sin more than others. Too many Christians and too many churches are deeply bothered by other people's sins and and grieved and just annoyed by their own. Isn't that where our flesh naturally goes to? We have reasons why we do what we do, but they don't. We have context, we have trauma, we have background, but they don't. They should know better, but but, but we have reasons why. May we be exceedingly more broken by our own sin than our sin of our brother and sister. And only from that kind of posture of humility and brokenness can we actually authentically love and pray others who are in sin. Not as Pharisees, not as people who have arrived, but the people who are on a journey who need help as well. So then pull out our log. Pull the log out of our own eyes so then we can have grace to clearly see and help our brother and sister in their own sin. Number two. Then, after you've done that, if you see your brother and sister in sin, pray. Pray. Don't talk to them first. Talk to God about them first. Don't talk to others about them first in the name of prayer requests. Hey, I just want you to pray for Sister Coo. She's done all. No, pray to God first. Don't pray. Don't talk about them first. The time may come where you have to speak to them in private. And that may be the most loving, godly thing. But first, pray. Can you imagine how healthy our churches would be if we first prayed when we saw sin in other people's lives? Spouses, married people, how Healthy would your church, your your marriage be if you first prayed with the Father when you were grieved by your spouse's sin rather than just lob accusations and bitterness and stonewall them? Pray first before you say a word. I can be so guilty of this. Sometimes I observe sin in people's lives and instead of praying, I fret. I'm anxious. I'm concerned and I'm not talking to God about it. And when I was younger, I would talk to them about it right away and not talk to God about it at all. God, thank God that he's helped me grow. But I need this more and more. I cannot tell you how many sins I have been delivered from because of your prayers. Because I know many of you pray for me diligently and pray for the other pastors. And I want to honor my parents who prayed for me throughout my youth. God uses your prayers, grandparents and parents. And brothers and sisters and singles, we need each other to make it safely home. Your prayers matter. So now, let me make a hard pivot and conclude the final three things that John says we know. If you look at your Bible, you're going to see that John says we know three times. What are the three things that we know? First, we know. Verse 18. Would you read this out loud again? We know that everyone who has been born of God. 
We've been covering this passage over and over again, this theme over again, but let me remind you of one easily forgotten piece. The sin that John so often goes after in his letter is not sexual morality or greed or substance abuse, though all those would be necessarily included, but the sin he goes after the most is hatred and neglect of brother and sister. See, to be righteous in John's theology is not merely being nice or not doing bad things, but being a deeply loving, agape-loving person. So you can't sit there smuggling and be like, well, I don't do all those things those sinners do. Because what he has in mind is, are you a deeply gospel-shaped, loving person like Jesus is? That's righteousness in John's mind. Not merely not doing bad things, but engaging in deeply loving acts daily for your people. But let's look at verse 18. The second half we haven't touched on, but one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. It is not the believer who keeps him safe, but the Christ keeps him. God keeps him. And because God protects him, the next verse is possible. Look, hear this. The evil one does not harm him. This does not mean you can't be tempted by the devil or even hurt like the Apostle Paul is. Even Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4 in the desert. But what we're talking about is keeping you from eternal damnation, from death, spiritual death, the ultimate death. The evil one, if you are God's children, the evil one cannot keep you from that destination. That is where you belong because you are part of his family. You are his beloved child. That's your inheritance. The enemy Don't think he's stronger than God. He cannot take you from that. He cannot take your inheritance. He's a finite created creature. That is yours. He cannot harm you and touch you ultimately, though he may tempt you, though he may sway you at times. God will protect you, and God will help you fight your sin. Second, we know. 1 John 5, 19. Read this with me. We know that we are from God. Reminder that John distinguishes throughout the letter the world and God's family. There's no in-between. Every single person in this room is in one realm. You're either in God's family or you're in the world of darkness under the power of the evil one. And those who are far, who are not, who are from God are no longer under the power of the evil one. Remember, when John has in mind this idea of the world, He's talking about the attitudes of the world. Do you remember John chapter 2? He talks about the sins, sins and the attitudes about pride for what you have and lust for what you don't have. Satan rules in that realm. He influences that realm. And if you are in Christ, you no longer have to be under the boot of that, under the control of that, though it will influence, it, influence us at times. But let me end this kind of series with just reminding you this hope. Verse 17 from chapter 2, 1 John 2, 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Remember John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We have victory in Jesus. Third, we know, okay, I'm, I'm landing this. 1 John 5.20, would you read this now? And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. 
There's a lot here. The last thing we know is that we've been given understanding. Remember, it's given. It's a gift. You see that word given? And it's not that we just may know intellectually, like you can just get a catechism. Oh, yeah, I know what, that, that's what the Bible teaches. But not know just truth abstractly, but know him who is true. Do you see that? Him who is true. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Truth is not just something you know. Truth is someone you know. It's a person. And not only that, he goes even further. You are in him. You see that? We are in him. This is absolutely stunning. This is what theologians call the union with Christ. What John says often is abiding in Christ. Not only do we know something or have a relationship with someone, but the divine actually inhabits us, and we in him. The Trinity, that's one, brings us into it, and we are with them, and here they are with us. This is astounding. This is absolutely insane if you can comprehend. Do you hear me? Not just that you know truth. Or that you have a relationship with truth, but truth actually, God, Jesus actually abides in you, and you in him. It's th- th- that, that should take the rest of your life to just ponder the Im- amazing implications of that. Finally, notice how John ends the section declaring that the son, Jesus Christ, is what? What is he? True God. You can go back and forth with JWs or... Elders that come to your door about the divinity of God and go to 1 John and John 1, 1 John 1 and John 1, but you could also go to 1 John 5. Very clearly, Jesus Christ is God. He is divine. And, and let me just make a, a very important side notes. There are a number of visitors here. I don't know who you are. If you do not know that you have the Son, then you do not have eternal life. You do not have peace with God. God's sin still remains upon you unless you have Jesus as your sacrificial atonement for your sins. And if you are not sure you have peace with God, oh, would you come and pray with me? Or grab another member here who knows Jesus and ask them to pray with you so that you may have peace with God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the whole purpose of this letter is that you may know that you have eternal life. This letter is actually doesn't exist to cause doubt, but actually surge confidence in your heart. But if you don't have that confidence because you keep seeing things that don't line up with your reality, then come, let us pray with you. Let us pray with you. Do not leave this morning without letting us talk with you, wrestle through your doubts, pray with you. Confess your sins and turn so that you may have life in the Son forever. And not just have life in the Son, but his, the Son will come into you. Absurd. Now let's end with a final verse. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. <laughs> Remember, John is a very old man at this point. He's probably in his 80s. He's a spiritual grandfather, great-great-grandfather. And with his closing words, he chooses his words wisely, and he says this, little children. Remember, he keeps saying little children throughout this, this letter. What is that little children? It's not like a derogatory term. It's a sign of endearments, affection, because you are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Little children. I'm speaking to you as a spiritual great-great-grandfather. Little children. Keep yourself from idols. Really, John? You're going to end this 
beautiful letter with that word, that's like writing a love letter to someone you love, and you're saying all these beautiful things, and at the very end, you're like, by the way, don't cheat on me. What? Why, John? Why would you end like that? Why can't you say, God loves you, just a reminder, because God is love, First John 4. What is he doing? Well, perhaps it's because John is an old man, and he's seen many people fall away from Christ. He's seen many Christians struggle and trip up over idols. And he knows that all of us are subject to idols in any kind of form. John Calvin famously said, our hearts are idol factories. You can make an idol out of something absolutely wicked. You can make your idol out of something so good like children or marriage or a good career. We can make an idol out of anything. I can make an idol of being a pastor, out of preaching. God, help us. Our hearts are idol factories. And John, being a good, spiritual, wise grandfather, he knows that. An idol will keep us from life. He wants us to have life. He wants us to live in love and victory and overcome the evil one. And because of that, he knows that one of our greatest obstacles towards that life is idols. So he ends with that word, keep yourself from idols. Did you know that this word keep is a military term? Like a keep? So if you are keeping yourselves from idol, it, idols, it is not something casual. Hey, you keeping yourself from idols? Sure. Always. No, no, no. If you are keeping yourself from idols, you know you are because you're diligent. Just like a soldier is diligent to keep his fort. There's a vigilance to it. There's an intentionality to it. He's calling his people. Hey, after all that I've said, that's so good and beautiful and great. Keep yourselves with all your heart from idols because it will kill you from life. And if you followed along with this letter, you know that you have no power to do that on your own, right? Remember, John brings us back to John 15 over and over again. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And so, how do we have the power to keep ourselves from idols? Abide. Remember, when you stop obeying, you stop abiding. When you stop loving like Jesus, you stop abiding. And when you stop abiding, you lose all of his power. So you can't keep yourself from idols. And so the end of this letter is a call for us to abide in Jesus so that we can keep ourselves from idols and have eternal life forever. And one of the essential ways for us to keep it to the end is this, church, to pray for one another. Won't you commit to praying for me and the other pastors and our families? Oh, we need your prayers. We need your prayers. How many millions of things did God spare us from because you guys have been faithful to pray for us? That we have no clue. Only until eternity we'll see that. And would you pray for your MCs diligently? Would you pray for your DNAs? Would you pray for Lebanon Lutheran Church? Would you pray knowing full well that God has given us a promise that if we pray that he'll give us life? You can take his word to the bank. And I need this passage. I'm holding on to this promise right now because there's situations in our church that's absolutely breaking and ripping apart my heart. And I'm banking on this word that his word is true because it is. It's always true. So never stop praying, church. Keep hoping in God's promises. And as we do that, we're going to increasingly walk in the fullness of God, victory over the evil one, and increasing abiding and enjoying God. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. On the screen are going to be four responses. I'm going to ask us to have some private prayer this morning. They're going to just play something instrumental. And just go through these lists. Go through this list. 
in your own time, in your own way. Pray for yourselves. Spend as much time as you need. Confess your sins and receive God's forgiveness, according to 1 John 1.19. Praise God for your advocate, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. That Jesus is advocating with the Father, silencing the accusations of the evil one. And then pray for those who are caught in sin in our church, that God will give them life. And do it with faith, promising, banking that God's word is true and he will keep to his word. Amen? So why don't you just play for the next five minutes and we pray. So welcome you to pray through these now, church.